Welcome to The Future Strategist. And today, uh, again, my guest is Greg Cochran, and we're, of course, going to be talking about uh, COVID-19. Hi, Greg. How are you? Uh, all right so far. Yep. So I, I just want to sort of brag for both of us. We did our, our first podcast on this virus on February 9th, and we both warned this was far worse than almost anyone else was saying. So we, we kind of got this one right. Uh so I th unfortunately, yes. Uh, I guess it'd be better if we were wrong, certainly. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I was, I've been telling my, my students at Smith College since, like, the beginning of the semester, I think there's a very good chance we won't finish the semester. And I had a student who came into our last class saying, you were right, and they, they, were, they were telling me they were talking about me, and I'm like the crazy guy in a movie who was saying, doom is coming, and no one believes him, and then it comes. Oh. Um. So. I saw somebody on Twitter say the same thing about me and a few other people that, you know, they're the guy in that movie who's, you know, the Cassandra. Right. Uh, I told him I'm used to it. <laughs> well, so uh, how do you think things are going right now? I mean, what are, what are, how bad is it? Uh, oh, it's not good. It's spreading very widely in Western Europe and it's, you know, it's a little behind, but it's spreading very rapidly in the United States. But um, I'm uh, I'm not fundamentally pessimistic. I think people are going to be – people have demonstrated that certain things work. And I think other people are being frightened into doing now, by, things Now, by work. people demonstrating, I assume you mean mostly uh, South Korea and China. And Taiwan, yeah. And Taiwan. Sing probably so, Singapore. Okay. And so they've demonstrated it's possible to stop the spread of the virus, to reduce the number of cases, basically to get R naught, how many people a new infected person infects below one. So we uh, know. Yeah. So we know this virus isn't so contagious that changes in behavior can't stop it, and that that is really really good news. We didn't we didn't know that on February 9th, right? On February 9th, it could have been that it's just almost everyone's going to get it. That was a possible. That was open. That was an open possibility back then. Um, I think it already looked as people had some estimates of R naught, maybe around two to three, <coughs> and I think that um, that suggested it was almost it was likely possible. There have been other diseases with larger ones, uh, such I think I've seen an estimate of ten for measles. That would have been more difficult. But yeah, this was this was. I, I, you would have guessed it was possible. Uh, what was interesting is that um, uh, most people, I think I've mentioned this before, but what they taught people in school in epidemiology is that quarantines and things of this sort never work. Um, I don't know why they said that uh, uh, other than, you know, sheer delight in being an idiot. But uh, uh I have seen several different articles by people saying, oh, hey, maybe they do work. Uh, of course, the thing is, if somebody said it was difficult, they weren't wrong. But there are new tools. Uh, I mean, we can do things like very rapidly, you know, with genetic methods. We can tell if somebody has this, uh, even when we haven't developed other methods which take longer. That wasn't always possible. Uh, uh, I mean, and, you know, slightly different things are being done. I mean, in different places and also over time. I mean, China, I think originally it was, you know, clamped down on everything. I think Korea is doing things somewhat differently. It involves lots and lots of testing. And uh, 
isolating people that are infected. If you can do tremendous amounts of testing, you can do that, and it is, I think, less burdensome than what China has been doing. Although China has, they've been changing their methods as you know, there's as time has progressed. Um, but it's things like lots of testing. It's things like you know, checking people for fevers, uh, you know, which is easy to do. Uh, and uh, I, I would say that the uh, you know, there was a saying which we, we should not forget, which is, you know, seek knowledge even from China. Uh, yeah, we should learn from what, what they're doing. How many people would you estimate in the United States probably have it right now? I don't know. 10 or 20,000, maybe, uh, maybe more. Uh, but if we, if we clamp down fast enough, it may not have to get hugely bigger. Uh, I mean, Italy was not quick to do these things, and they have a big problem because of it, but they're doing them now, and it's hard for me to see how under current conditions, where people are not allowed to go or do much of anything, how it could still be spreading. But the, we the don't have is, evidence yet, right, from, from Italy there might, working. There might be a little. Uh, uh, if you look at the... Uh, the problem is there is a time delay. You know, the the people who are showing up were exposed at least a few days ago. The people who are desperately ill and dying were exposed longer than that. So if I assume that that R naught is below one now in Italy, and I think it is, with them doing what they're doing, it will take a little while before we start seeing the number of cases, the number of new cases, uh, uh, level off. Uh, but I think there's a, a few signs that it may have already started to be growing more slowly. Uh, but it's a little early to say. But it's almost inevitable that it will. I mean, these bugs, this bug is not teleporting. It's not you know, sh- shooting across a mile to get somebody. It's caused by reasonably close contact, uh, people being in the same room at least. I mean, most of the time. One thing you have to don't get too confused by it. when people say, you know, there might be some spread by somebody touching something, etc. And there may be, and it may be worth being careful about that. But it's probably not a lot of the spread. Probably most of that is people coughing, breathing, being reasonably close to each other. Well, uh, and if you decrease the number of people being close to each other, you're probably reducing the majority of the transmission. Would you be comfortable right now eating um, pizza that was, you know, made someplace else and delivered, like a, you know, if Domino's delivered you a pizza, would you be comfortable eating it? Maybe not entirely, but that it could still be true that, you know, I mean, it can still be true that something is personally a risk worth avoiding, but on a population level, it's not one that causes R not to be greater than one. Okay. Okay. So, uh, so. Uh, the fact that something happens occasionally does not necessarily mean that it's important in the spread. I mean, uh, I mean, there was a guy once who was a piano, a piano tuner, and it turned out that the ivory on the keys had been cut from an uh, elephant that had died of anthrax, and he contracted it and died. But, you know, that's just not a common thing. Okay, uh, but that's also not something you should be afraid of, given... If you well, limit yourself you, to a thousand fears, that shouldn't be one of them. Maybe it would be the thousands and first. But, yeah. but anyhow, the thing, if you're trying to understand 
you know, the what's likely to happen. We need to look as far as we can at the major uh, elements in how it's spread, not the thing that happens occasionally. What about uh, with children? Do you support we should be closing down all the schools in the United States? It looks like it's the thing to do for a while. If we learn better, we can always open them up again. Uh, if we like, it seems likely that they catch it but don't get very sick, so they are probably a vector more than a victim. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, and uh, I mean, some of the objections made are shallow and foolish. They said, "Oh, everybody will starve to death if you don't have." Uh, I've seen kids. Uh, you know, we have them at the high school that my kids went to, and not even that many people ate because they hated it. Uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, and and you know, if the average kid in North America probably went a week without eating, they'd probably be better off. Where this is the we're the second fattest country in the world. I, I agree, but I, and I practice fasting, so I I'm not saying that to people. I think most most Americans, you know, including the me before I did fasting, would benefit from. I'm, I'm just saying, without food. It's, it, there are plenty of other ways to get food to people other than having them congregate in large, re, large groups. Yeah. Uh, now, if, if it turns out that, uh, if it turns out that, uh, uh, it's not necessary, sure, send it back to school. I mean, I'm not talking about closing school just for the sake of closing school, but with what we know now, it seems reasonable. And as soon as we learn better, I mean, if we learn that it's not necessary, we can quit immediately. Yeah, I, so, I agree. Uh, I mean, the the benefit of closing school could be huge, and in the cost, especially since we can change our mind, right? We can't go back in time and say, "Oh, well, let's have closed school two weeks ago," but we can just reopen them again. And which which is too bad because we would be better off if we had the. Uh, I mean, most places are closing. Although I mean, it's not all done yet, but many are. I think the biggest resist, the largest place I've heard that's Resistant to this is uh, New York City. Yeah, and the governor, I think, just announced that he's going to force the mayor to close schools. Well, I hope that he – I mean, I presume he's doing that by having him arrested and held in the zoo. But uh, We're not that lucky. Know, uh, um, it's interesting. You see, this proves that Como is an insincere human being. You see, most of the time, he talks as if he's a foolish person, but he was lying. <laughs> yeah, uh, well. Now, but de Blasio – he is sincere. I yeah. Well, we American people, even Democratic voters, rejected him. So for the primary, well, but you know, New York elected him, uh, and uh, he's he and I believe also the guy you pointed to run the schools, who has done many another stupid thing, uh, is he's consistent. He's he. Uh, that's an interesting thing uh, that I think is being illustrated in this is. Um, a lot of people are not really changing, but sometimes the reactions to them are changing. De Blasio did foolish things before, but they were foolish things that didn't scare people, that didn't look like they had huge negative consequences. Uh, and similarly, there are certain people getting strange new respect for being right, and they had a tendency to be right on many things, <laughs> but, but on most other things, there was something more, or on many other questions, there were more important things than being right. Yeah, well, virtue signaling is a thing, so. It's. Well, let me ask you about the the UK's approach. So, the UK is not doing, they're not shutting things down. They're, or maybe they might in the future, but they're deliberately keeping things open with the idea that they're going to be shutting things down later to try to time 
when when I guess there's going to be the peak. So they they're, don't think like containment can work. They're more managing the badness. They're wrong. Okay, they they, they might be. I listened to the full press conference. They're they're not fooled. They're not talking about we're going to use crystals to heal this. It's it did at least sound like they thought this through and you know they thought wrong. Uh, I've looked at this in some detail. Uh, two or three things. One, uh, the basic problem is that when you infect a small fraction of people, uh, a medium fraction of them gets so ill they need intense supportive care. Mm-hmm. Five, let's say perhaps 10%, 5%, some number like that. And the those resources are very limited. Like the number of people in Italy that have been infected is probably only a few percent. But that's too much. That means that they've overflowed the hospital resources. It doesn't take that much to do that. This is just arithmetic. Therefore, you can't expect you know most of our pundits to know what to do with it. But the total number of you know slots for supportive respiratory therapy is quite limited. And uh, if you had five percent of the population, and then five percent of that ended up needing a hospital, it's impossible. Well, I think. The reasoning behind what they're doing, from what I could gather, is they do think, you know, we're not going to be able to shut things down long enough to keep R0 below 1 you know, until we can eradicate the disease. So even, I think, my guess is they think that even in China and South Korea, it's going to come back. And if people have a limited capacity to self-isolate, you want to time that and now isn't the right time if you accept that it's inevitable that most people are going to get it. There are, they are mistaken. There are two ways of, of explaining this. My short way is that the guys making these decisions were the dumbest jackasses that ever walked the earth. Here's the long-winded, more polite way. <laughs> okay. uh, uh, first, they started out with certain simple mistakes. They thought that what happened in that uh, in Wuhan area was that one of the major things that helped get it under control was that so many people had had it that a significant fraction of the population was now immune. Right. That is not true. Now, wait, we know, I know who said it wasn't true. They investigated, but how confident can we be of that? Oh, entirely. I mean, they've done lots and lots of testing. They know what the fractions are. Uh, and they've done more than the rest of China. The fraction of people who ever caught it around Wuhan was not that high. It's just even that smallish fraction, probably only a few percent. So there's not much. a huge number of, what is it, asymptomatic people in Wuhan? There might have been twice as many as the number that were symptomatic. You might have been as many as were symptomatic. But the point is, the point still stands. We know what fraction of people have it because of lots of testing in China. Uh, I mean, and, and the amount that would be required to make a substantial contribution in controlling it, you would have had to have well over half the people have it. That never happened. Okay, so uh, you need over half basically to get herd immunity. The uh, to have to do it all by itself, you could have a combination of some herd hum- immunity and some restrictions on travel and so forth. But if you did nothing but herd immunity, uh, what you need is that the fraction of people who are not immune times the R naught has to be less than one. So, for example, if the R naught is three, you can have no more than a third of the people still susceptible. Okay, so you need two-thirds of the people to have already had it. The point is, this is not what happened. They controlled it by limiting people's interactions, not by letting significant numbers of people be 
get sick, go through the process, and become immune. That's simply a mistake. Okay. It didn't happen. And it didn't happen to South Korea either. Even more obvious, because it, you know it never got as big, and yet they're controlling it. It didn't happen in Singapore, and yet they're controlling it. It didn't happen in Taiwan, and yet they're controlling it. This is a mistaken analysis. Okay, I don't know. I mean, at least from what I heard, they didn't say that had happened. It was more like that's the plan for the future. They're apparently thinking this. Some people have been looking closely at what they're saying. And the point is they say we need to do it. But clear since other people have succeeded without it, you do not need to do it. Well, and we, if, don't, if you we do don't quite know that. I mean, I, I, to strongman their position, I would say you, we, we haven't had a country that has shut things down and, and stayed that way in a sustainable way. Korea is not shutting down things nearly as much. What they're doing, it, it's more a combination of testing, both for fever and for uh, it, you know genetic tests to see if you have it. Uh, it is, you know, and they haven't done as much shutting down. And even in, in China, they're already, you know, a lot of China, they didn't shut down as much as they did in that one province. And there are some relaxations. They're just wrong. Okay. And the other thing is the cost. And they're wrong in other ways. Like, even if no one had done it, they're saying, well, nobody could sustain this for very long. Well, of course we could, if we had to. I mean, the cost of not sustaining it, of letting it go through a lot of the population, is you're going to kill a lot of people. And it says, well, we'll let it go slowly. I said, well, you'll still kill a lot of people, although not as many. But but if anything, uh, you know, it is, you know, at an economic level, it's easier to have lots of people not going to work in a country like the United States or England because the fraction of people that are doing things that are necessary for survival is smaller than it how, is in China. How long, though, do we have to, you know, keep the schools closed and have non-essential people not go to work for us to beat this? Is it? It's to a vaccine, right? Uh, there are. That is one approach, and there are many. That's one of the problems with the people talking about this. Is they say, "Well, I know there's only one way." I said, "You don't actually know anything at all," which is makes it harder for you to come up with the right answer. There are many possible approaches. Many, A number of them are being worked on. More should be. But, for example, uh, it is, uh, you know, is it possible to get a vaccine more rapidly than they have been discussing, which is maybe on the order of 18 months? I said, well, if you had 10 times as much money, would that help? I First thought question. the safety testing was the bottleneck. Well, one thing you can do is you can have parallel, if you have several efforts, you can be tested them all at once, which is something we don't normally do. But because of this very high cost of shutting down so much of the economy, it's worth spending more money. I, I don't get how that can work. I thought the only way safety testing can work is you have to like look at the prolonged effect of giving it to a whole bunch of people. So there isn't a, a way of accelerating that. There are, partly because there are other methods than just vaccines, but... You know, if you say, if you increase your probability at least of getting done in a given time by trying three different approaches, mm -hmm. there are also other approaches that people don't worry as much. I mean, you know, there are a number, you can have a weakened virus approach. You can have a killed virus approach. You can produce, uh, you know, the synthetic versions of the proteins that form the capsule for the virus. There are methods, uh, that involve, you know, using like slightly altered but non-infectious just the the RNA of the virus. Oh, that makes you, sense. Because then you're saying, I mean, maybe the weakened virus is horrible, but it's not going to be worse than having the full virus. So you could say, look, this is at least better than getting the full virus in a few months without getting the weakened one first. 
one of the things about this is we don't have to be quite as careful as we do on some other things because the choice in making vaccines or any drug is you're balancing the good and the bad, you know, the good and the side effects. Uh, and one reason we have been very careful, uh, increasingly so with time with vaccines, is we are going to less important diseases for the most part, less dangerous diseases. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, with uh, smallpox, although we did, you know, people didn't do careful statistical studies because they hadn't even been invented yet, but the original smallpox vaccine was pretty safe, but not as safe as people would like today. It would have side effects that would kill maybe a full one in one million people. <laughs> oh, hey, that was reason enough for us. That's one reason we don't give it anymore, because that is less safe than most of the vaccines people use. But on the other hand, most of the targets of those other vaccines are less dangerous. Smallpox would kill 30% of the people who caught it. Okay, what now, suppose we were talking about the measles vaccine. In some sense, it needs to be safer because the danger you're protecting against is not as big. Now, and, you know, we've gotten to the point of vaccines against things that are not terribly dangerous. Some of them, in fact, with the right behavior, you could completely avoid the problem. I mean, we have given vaccines that are, you know, for, for against certain strains of papillomavirus that are dangerous for cervical cancer. Well, there were other ways to avoid cervical cancer, but people said, well, we would like a vaccine. It needs to be quite safe because cervical cancer, by the time of the vaccine, was not too dangerous. We were detecting it fairly early with the pap test, etc. Yeah. Uh, the point is, the smaller the problem, the more safer and you know, uh, you have to make the, the cure. And I imagine we could just give the vaccine to people at great risk, because obviously we, we, we know some groups are at far more risk than others. So we sure. can say if you're young and healthy, it's not worth it. If you're over 60, definitely take it. Or, I mean, or an, an analogy. In World War II, we trained people with live ammunition. Said why? Because we need to get the job done. Is it a little riskier? Do we lose a few people by mistakes? Yes. But we we have to win. Okay. If uh, So, I mean, this is a more dangerous bug than most of the bugs we have been recently producing vaccines for. We can afford to be a little less painstaking and a little more in a hurry. Okay, but there are also other possibilities, and we talked about some of them, and people are working on some of the things we talked about earlier. For example, I mentioned serums, which is you use uh, basically plasma from people who have already gotten over this and have antibodies, mm -hmm. and those antibodies can be useful. That used to be uh, a fairly common way of treating certain uh, important diseases like uh, pneumococcal pneumonia uh, back in the 30s. Right. People and it worked. And people stopped using it because other methods were simpler and worked better. Newer methods, such as uh, antibiotics. Uh, but people are, you know, the Chinese have been shipping blood products for that purpose to Italy. They're use they have been using them some. Apparently, they are somewhat helpful in China. And other people, and and there are refinements on that. For example, we have ways if we can identify the proper antibodies that are helpful, we have ways of mass producing them using monoclonal antibody techniques. There are many things we can do. I mean, uh, the people who were saying, we're just going to have to, to some extent, I'm trying to be fair, but not real fair, because I don't deserve it, uh, 
to some extent, take the hit. We're going to lose a bunch of people, but it's it's really the only way. Well, you know, they remind me in The Simpsons of Ned Flanders' parents who had trouble disciplining him, who said, we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I there mean, aren't I, any possibilities. This sounds convincing, but just, you know, the, the British government, they, they seem competent. I mean, I... No, they don't. Well, I mean, other than this, I, I just... No, they don't. Okay, I, I, I'm just confused here, where a group of people that seem competent are doing something that seems crazy, and I'm sure they've given this a lot of thought, and obviously the, the Boris Johnson must know if the United States and Europe do much better than Britain, he's gone, and he'll be considered the worst prime minister since Chamberlain. It's so, not too late for them to correct their, most of their mistake, but, uh, I mean, there was a book I read that was a... Uh, Interesting and somewhat relevant. It was called Wizard Wars, about a guy doing scientific intelligence in World War II, mm -hmm. R.V. Jones. And, you know, there were difficult decisions with a technical component back in those days, and sometimes people did them right, and sometimes people did them wrong. So, for example, there, the Germans were using a method of steering their bombers with good accuracy, to, a, a radio control method that used two beams, and if you flew right down the middle of them, uh, you could tell you were in the middle because one was p transmitting dashes and the other dots in a complementary way. And if you heard, uh, you know, you no longer heard any little blips or interruptions, you were in a certain region, only about 200 yards wide over London. It was oh, a navigation scheme. That's clever. Okay. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, intelligence and suggested some things about this. And uh, so Joan says, you know, I think that's what they're doing. And there was another scientific advisor to Churchill, and he's talking to Churchill, okay? Churchill actually listened to scientific guys, uh, which uh, paid off. Uh, but the other guy says, no, no, the, the diffraction limit, that can't work. And Jones says, you're not understand, you're not doing the analysis right. It can work. And what they did was they went up and they had found the frequency and they listened to it. It, it was, it was exactly as Jones had said. And the existing advisor, to Churchill, said, I must be past it. And he resigned. Right there. <laughs> That's great. Now, let me tell you what the proper thing to do for the guy who's been giving the current advice on this to uh, Boris, resign right now. Because he's not up to it. He's not up for it. All right, well. Okay. That's well. the way it is. Next. Uh, and, or, and there's other times where they never did do it right. And you're saying, but surely they're competent. And the answer is, well, only so much. There was a thing, if you dropped little metalized plastic strips that were about a quarter of a wavelength long for you know a quarter of the radar wavelength that people were using they had a they reflected a vast amount and they were useful at distracting the radar it was called chaff if you drop this uh in large amounts the uh the germans have trouble detecting your bombers yeah. okay uh now both sides had figured this out now the british did not use it because they said if we use it then the Germans will use it too. And the Germans, however, said, well, we won't do that because if we did, the British would use it too. But they can't both be right. Now, in this case, the Germans were right. You see, because if by this point of the war, which is probably 42, there's vast numbers of German bombers flying over Germany, and there are hardly any uh, excuse me, British bombers flying over Germany, and there's hardly any German bombers managing you know, to, to hit England, because England's fighter protection and so forth has gotten very strong. So the point is that, you know, if both sides used it, 
it would be to the advantage of the British by a huge amount because they're the ones flying the bombers. But the British Bomber Command, you know, Jones knew this. Jones said, we should start using it. Bomber Command, who are mostly not very technical guys, didn't see it. And they delayed it about a year and lost a lot more bombers than they needed to. Because, and you say, but, you know, mustn't they be competent at all these things? I said, well, it would be nice. <laughs> But and, well, and remember, they had they've been fighting for a couple of years. They'd flushed out some of the idiots. But these things happen. But this one doesn't have to happen. Okay. Uh, well, this. I mean, back to the coronavirus. What What do you think for countries outside of the the rich welfare countries that don't have very high state capacity, like India and Africa? What well, do you think? we still have to prove how much state capacity we have, but. Uh, um, so far, well, you know, so far we don't know everything. I mean, India is a funny case because according to their figures, they haven't had too many uh, cases. On the other hand, people leaving India or visiting India seem to have quite a few people seem to have caught it there. So it's one would have this. It is a bad sign. There were similar things in Egypt, and that's a bad sign too. Now in Africa, I haven't heard that lots. They're exporting lots of cases. Maybe they just have don't have too many yet. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, um, it may be that it's, it may be that there are local factors of some kind that make it less of a problem, or it could also be that there are local factors that make it simply grow somewhat slower. The duplication, you know, the doubling time in conditions like Europe and the United States seem to be is only a couple of days. That's uh, really scary. And, but it, if it was, for example, four days in Africa, uh, you know, in some central, warm, humid part of Africa, it, they'd have more time. Uh, they also have one advantage, which is, I think, almost certainly real. They're average younger. So even if they have a full-fledged epidemic and don't manage to control it, uh, they may, you know, they won't do quite as bad as some other places because this is something that, uh, you know, is much more likely to kill old people. Uh, but I'd, but I've also heard some of the things they're doing so far are quite rational. I think. You know, one underlying pattern in some of these places of if, if countries that have had a, a related problem recently, let's say like Ebola in West Africa, or like, or even a few years ago, like SARS in China or Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, you know, people take these things more seriously if they've lived through some of it. Now, the average, you know, decision maker in Western Europe, the United States, has, they haven't lived through it. And, you know, they can't understand it just by reading about it it's it doesn't feel real part of that could be just the nature of democracy where if you take money away from a popular program to do vote to this you know, if you'd done that last year you would have would have harmed you politically people can't you know it's hard for them to take seriously unusual things that are different from what they're used to that have not happened to them or, you know, I think it may go back even a full generation. Sometimes if your dad tells you something, that's well, enough for people. But it's well, it's not – reading my, is not enough. I mean, I, I certainly understand. My main research interest right now is in the dangers of um, artificial superintelligence. And it's really hard to convince people of that because obviously it's never happened before. And, you know, say, hey, once we develop computers that are much smarter than us, there's a decent chance they'll destroy us all. That's – that's a difficult argument to make. But I think that's also why a lot of people who study this were very worried 
about the virus because we're used to thinking in terms of exponential trends and we're used to being, you know, worrying about things that have never happened in our lifetime, at least. Well, I think I, I'm interested in some of those things, but I think, well, I mean, like Tyler Cowen was talking about, you know, two ways. There are three ways, if not and ways of looking at this. Mm-hmm. He talked about people who assume that every day is going to be like the day before. Right. Base raiders. He said, well, they, they're, that's sort of compatible with not thinking at all. Then he talked about people. Although who, actually, I mean, to be fair, most of the time that's pretty good. Most of the time it still doesn't require any thinking. The, uh, uh, like, yeah, sure. I mean, yes, the world doesn't constantly have new, unpredictable and totally strange disasters. If it were, did, we wouldn't even be here. But, uh, the second one he mentioned was people who actually think, you know, ha- have a mental grasp of things like exponential growth. You know, maybe some of them because that's what happened with their company, uh, uh, or because you know they're math modelers, or you know, there's there's various people who could have have reasons to think about this. Although a lot of it's probably just being smarter. But there's a third thing I think that we could use more of, and it's complementary to the num- to the you know understanding uh, mathematical trends which is to understand history because sure we may not have uh i mean it's hap- we've had serious plagues before they used to be happen every i mean there are plenty of plagues that were probably of a comparable severity to this one i mean one which no one had any way of dealing with and they would barely mention it because of the others that were even bigger uh i mean uh there were pl- you know you know you look at records of places like china and europe uh i mean other places were different sometimes, either because they don't have written records, or because in some cases, because they probably actually had less. I would say populations like the Americas before Columbus probably didn't have many plagues. Uh, but, uh, but Europe sure did. I mean, it goes back to classical times. I mean, I mean, and if you read history and believed it, you'd think about the plague of Athens, you'd think about the Antonine plague, the plague of Cyprian, you know, these are a couple about 20 years apart that hit the Roman Empire real hard. You'd think about the Black Death. You'd think about the English sweat, which was a super fast-spreading, super deadly thing in the 1500s uh, that hit two or three times and then just went away, never to be seen again. Uh, you'd think about the advent of cholera. That one is sort of better documented. Europe used to not have any. It was limited to India. But with better transportation, faster ships, it leaked out to other parts of the world, and lots of famous people died of cholera. Tchaikovsky died of cholera. Uh, uh, I mean, these things have happened. I mean, and saying it only counts if it happens when I remember it. Yeah. Yeah, that's... I mean, well, it's it's a big, again, it's a big problem with democracy, where... Just, just voters, for a second. You'll yeah. have to... Uh, I just heard something from my wife. Uh, the governor of California is suggesting that, or advocating that, everybody who's over sixty-five should stay at home. So, which is an interest. So, yeah. So you know, we're having you know dispatches from the front. Uh, so uh, as we talk, but then but of course is, you should also want everyone who lives in the household with someone over sixty-five to stay at home. Sometimes there's actually a way you might be able to successfully divide the household in ways that make people safe from each other, mm-hmm. depending on, you know, the structure of your house and everything. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyhow, what, what I was saying is uh, if we learn from what and we can from the methods that have worked pretty well, I mean, and they're not all exactly the same methods. And they also, they've been evolving at time. They're improving in East Asia. Okay. 
there's no reason we can't have uh, similar uh, control over it. And during the time you have control, you, you work hard on things to prevent or treat it. And you don't have to think only about a vaccine, only about a traditional vaccine, only about a traditional vaccine that takes the traditional time. You have choices. Uh, and, uh, and for that matter, uh, uh, I mean, and there are all sorts of different ways of developing better methods. Uh, let me give the example of uh, cholera. Okay. Cholera is primarily spread by, uh, you, you have a bad diarrhea that spreads it. And so if other people have impure water that's been, you know, contaminated with, by you, uh, they're at risk. It's not a respiratory disease. But how did we make progress against it? Well, we started treating water supplies, you know, uh, you know, chlorinating water, things like that. And that worked very well. But we also developed a vaccine for it. And there is one. We also found that we could uh, treat it with antibiotics. And we do that sometimes. And then somebody, unfortunately, it took a long time. Uh, well, first I'll talk about, you know, people found that things that suppress diarrhea were helpful which meant, for example, opium. <laughs> that was the original main use of opium, was as, it was like, you know, the, the kaopectate of the 1800s. Oh, that's right. People with the opium are, keep getting constipation. That's like a long-run problem, isn't it? So, but it, 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 it could be a feature as well as a Yeah, problem. yeah, I guess uh, that it's, or, you know, it's in turning America, it off a certain way, which could be I good mean, or bad. We had cholera out on the Great Plains, for example, after mm -hmm. it showed up. I mean, it hit the Comanche, uh, but it, it was a problem for uh, people taking wagons west. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you would take, and anybody remembers playing the game Oregon Trail, you bring a bunch of laudanum to try to save people from dying of cholera, and it worked moderately well. But and there's yet other methods that are even simpler that unfortunately weren't figured out until fairly recently. Uh, the main thing that's happening is you're losing lots of fluid and getting and your electrolyte balance is all messed up. That's what kills you. Mm -hmm. And they found that taking the right mix of water, salt, and sugar, it's a little bit like Gatorade. Yeah. If you just keep giving it to people all the time. They don't end up so dehydrated that they're in danger. Their electrolytes aren't that messed up. And you keep doing it for a few days, and they, they get over it. I mean, this is a zero-tech approach. But So how many different methods did we have of dealing with cholera? What did we come up with? Five? But the point is, uh, we can do, we're not limited to one method with this. I mentioned serum. People are using it. I mean, people are looking at existing drugs to see if any, you know, existing drugs have the basic feature that you know they're not super dangerous. Right. Or if, even if they have side effects, at least you already know what they are. So we have thousands of existing drugs. We should look at them. And again, people are doing so. There's a couple of things people are trying that they, there's at least some indication they might be helpful. Do you know uh, what drugs they're looking at? Do you remember the names? One of them is chloroquine, which is basically a drug against malaria. By the way, if it works, it's a total coincidence. Uh, you know, since this thing is nothing like malaria, it's a virus mm -hmm. rather than amoeba. But, you know, such things happen. Uh, uh, I don't know the numbers. I haven't seen the studies, but the people in the middle of the crisis say, yeah, we think maybe it's working. Uh, there was another one which I believe was an antiviral drug, I think, that's used with AIDS. Uh, remdesivir, something like that. Yeah. Anyhow, but there's many others that could be tried. Uh, and there's things that we don't have strong incentives of the usual kind, for example, because they're generic and, and cheap, and therefore no one would ever make any money on them. Uh, but that doesn't mean you can't 
create incentives or or both negative and positive. You could talk to somebody at a pharmaceutical company and say, you know, if you can find even an existing generic drug, we will find a way that you will be rewarded. You yeah. could also say, and and or uh, and if you don't try, you will be unrewarded vigorously. Yeah, both of those things are possible. Uh, you could, uh, I, I mean, but you you need to open your mind a little bit. I mean, I saw people talking about this as well. The only thing to do is a is a vaccine, and the only way to do it is the only is one way. So that's not correct. Uh, or here's another thing: when, I, when we talk about the existing pharmacopoeia, uh-huh. bring in the vets. There are drugs we use on animals we don't use on people, but they would be worth. We know something about them. They would also be worth, you know, examining to see if any of them are useful. You know, there are drugs that we don't use anymore because we have something better. Don't forget them. I mean, that's sort of the case with this uh, serum approach. You know, there are still a few things we use this for. So there's a lot of different ways we could get lucky, and there's enough of them that the chance of us getting lucky and finding something we've already done is high enough that it's it's worth trying to hold off as long as we can. Yes. Uh, I mean, again, it reminds me also of the time that – there was a suspicion that there was something wrong. This damage had been done to the uh, uh, heat shield of the Columbia. Mm-hmm. And then three NASA engineers said, well, there's nothing we could do if there was, so there's no point in telling them. And we just will have to hope that it, it won't. It didn't happen. And so they reenter and they're all burned up. But there were ways. There were many ways. You know, it was possible to, to uh, stretch out the mission by sending up something else with some extra oxygen and CO2 scrubbers. It was possible to try an EVA. I mean, NASA, you know, you know, particularly after everything went bad and they were all killed, made up all sorts of stories about how nothing could be done, but it wasn't true. I mean, for example, they said, even if we had set up a second shuttle mission, which was likely possible because one was well underway, was, you know, was half prepared. Yeah. Uh, they said, well, there wouldn't be enough seats for everybody to sit in, in the, if we all put them into one shuttle. And, and since the maximum G-forces you went through when going you know, through reentry was three Gs, uh-huh. you could have just you could have had them sit on the floor. Yeah, so that interesting, like the movie The Martian, where NASA did everything they possibly could. In fact, in, in real life, what you're saying, they said, "Ah, let's not even try." Too they hard to worry about. Well, not only that, they got tapes saying there was nothing to do. <laughs> Those particular guys were fired, but many more should have been. But by the way, you know, with Apollo 11, they did do all the things they could, and they made it work. You know, when they had an accident on the on a moon mission, they they they. And by the way, it, uh, you could it doesn't hurt enormously to try. Uh, whoever's giving this advice, you know, sometimes people say, "Well, you got to make the hard choices," which is like, you know, which is to do something painful and stupid. I said, you know. That's probably one way of advertising how tough you are, but that doesn't mean it's the best thing to do. Uh, those people in England, uh, you know, find the key advisors, fire them, put in someone else. Uh, you know, do I blame uh, Boris Johnson for not being an epidemiologist? I said no, uh, but he needs – these people are wrong. I mean, you can see it has worked without enormous impossible costs in places like Korea. You don't have to know all the details. You just have to know that other people have shown they can do something. Uh, and now, if you could bolster this with saying, 
And I mean, it's not just that there are many possibilities. Some of those possibilities could be speeded up with money. I was talking to, uh, like, something I suggested a while ago was uh, do a genome-wide genome association study to see if there are any particular genetic variants that make you a lot more or a lot less resistant. They might give you hints on how to, that won't cure things, but it might give you a hint on approaches. Are also things like do, is vitamin D or vitamin C up? Look at the people in the household where someone was infected and then look at, you know, the different vitamin levels, different, do blood analysis of people in the household and try to find correlations between who gets infected and different things in their blood and maybe, you know, people should be supplementing more with vitamin D. Look at the records of something, of an HMO and see, uh, uh, which would include records on dosages of many things and see, uh, uh, I mean, if unfortunately, this will be more possible after we've had more losses. But say, let's suppose we we have 500 people who die in California in a few weeks. What we can say is that, well, can we get any useful knowledge to reduce future deaths by doing this kind of data mining? Yeah, like uh, what, see what they're already taking. I mean, I, I don't know how true this is, but I've been reading that like. Blood sugar is something that's bad to have higher blood sugar because of this. And, of course, metformin reduces blood sugar. It's a cheap generic prescription. Lots of people take metformin. Right. You could see by looking at them and doing you know, some data mining on existing records that, although, I mean, I don't know if we really want to do that because I'm sure it would violate HIPAA. Yeah, we, we can't violate privacy Wait, we, laws. We, can't, we okay. can't do that. I mean, uh, uh, well, what's the phrase? The graves... Uh, 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 a quiet and private place. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, there is another tendency to have a lot of rules which at most have marginal uh, validity and to act as if they can't be broken even in an emergency. But they can be. You know, like, why are there fire axes? Normally you don't want to chop a hole in a door, right? But you want to be able to when you have to. My favorite uh, I, rule, I saw this on Twitter. I don't know how true it is, but someone was saying I, I'm not allowed to work for home, from home because the rule is I'd have to send a, an inspector to my home to make sure it's OSHA compatible. So I've got to stay at work because they have to make sure my chair is properly ergonomic. And that's just the there, rule. There are, uh, but, uh, well, yes, I have an example for that too. Uh, uh, there was a battle, kind of the last big battle of the U.S. Navy, in which the Japanese, you know, late in 44 in the Philippines, the Battle off Samar, in which the Japanese had successfully distracted some of the U.S. fleet away from the supply ships mm-hmm. that were that were supplying a landing. And so the core of the Japanese fleet, which is a couple of big battleships and a bunch of heavy cruisers and, you know, maybe 15, 20 ships altogether, suddenly show up. And there's not much to stop them. Yeah. One of my one of my uncles was on one of the little ships that you know, had the job of trying to. Uh, and uh, uh, there was a, a young man. Uh, we had some light carriers. They're converted cargo ships. They carry about twenty planes. And they were these. The planes were just doing their level best to stop these guys, even though they didn't have the right weapons or anything. And then he's used up all his weapons, and he lands on the island where we're invading on Leyte. Mm-hmm. And he says, "I need more ammo. I need bombs. I need something." And the uh, the guy running the uh, the depot with the uh, bombs in it said, "Those are not navy bombs. Those are army bombs." Uh, and uh, and so the the young fighter pilot is pointing to the Japanese ships you can see on the horizon, yes. <laughs> saying, 
you know, uh, and the guy says, no, I'm sorry, those are army bombs. Uh, so this kid, Lupo, uh, he was Italian, uh, Italian descent. Uh, he said, well, that's just too bad. He pulls the gun on this superior officer, and he gets those bombs. Good job. We call this management from below. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was the right thing to do. I mean, you don't want to do it every day, but, you know, when you can see the... Uh, I still remember, I was talking to my uncle about it. He was on a destroyer escort, which is a ship with one gun that normally is supposed to be, you know, guarding a convoy, and they were charging the Yamato, firing at it with their one five-inch gun. They got close enough to see the people running around on the deck. And let me tell you, he didn't enjoy it at all. Yeah. Uh, but, you see, it was people like him and many others that rose to the occasion and did what had to be done when the people at the top fucked up. Yeah. Well, let's hope that we don't have to pay as high a price as we did there. Uh, the, uh, you know, uh, the experts have been problems to some extent. Uh, you know, the consensus in among epidemiology types and public health types was that the sort of things China did can't be done and don't work. They taught them that in school. I don't know why they think this. I mean, it is true they're not easy to do. That so- much is true. So this is kind of interesting because a lot of people think, oh, we didn't properly fund epidemiology in the past. We didn't properly fund the CDC. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe there would have been more people saying that it would have taken us longer to close schools had we given better funding to the supposed experts. Some of these experts were at least still able to learn. I've seen at least three articles by guys who say, you know, we all thought that uh, quarantine was regressive and didn't work and so forth. But the Chinese have apparently shown that it does. Uh, or can, you know, in certain situations. I mean, I could imagine situations in which it would not work. What if you had something that somehow produced, you know, you were very much more infectious, so that it would, you know, R naught was 10, like measles. It would be much harder to make it work. Uh, but, uh, uh, and you had WHO saying things, you know, they had the same ideas. They were saying things like, we shouldn't, you know, cut off, uh, uh plane flights from, uh, uh, China a few right. years, I mean a few, excuse me, weeks. Time is taking a strange uh, uh, tendency lately. Every day feels like a, a much has changed. It does. But, yes. And by the way, that wasn't enough, but it was probably helpful. It probably reduced the number of, of cases that got ceded over to the United States. Of course, you realize soon China will be blocking flights from the United States because they've got it under control and we don't. Yeah, understandably so. Uh, and Mexico's talking about blocking, you know, uh, uh, people coming from the United States because, as far as we can tell, the, it is there is less of an epidemic at this moment in Mexico than the United States. Yeah, so that's I, argument for this is all a computer simulation designed for someone's entertainment. That Mexico will be building the wall and pay, Mexico will be and paying pay for the for wall. It. Yes, yep. yes. This is uh, Trump uh, turned out his his most outrageous promise turned out to come true. But the. You know, it doesn't mean that you always want to control movement of people, but it's sort of useful to be able to when it's useful. This, and in this case, it's extremely useful. Uh, but like if, let's suppose that we do things which are, they don't have to be identical to China's things. They may have a general similarity. 
we're finding ways of cutting down the R naught. People are changing their behavior. Uh, there are a number of things we can do. Uh, and again, we get to learn from them. But once we get it under control, it'll start shrinking. I think you're going to see this. You know, people are doing a lot in Italy. I think you'll see the results. I would, I would have said soon, but I'm not sure that two weeks sounds like soon anymore. But, you know, it, it shouldn't be longer than that, that you should start to see the trends bend down. Uh, but uh, there are things we can do. If we get it under control, We then you want to start, you may actually do a little bit of, of managing it and say, well, can we keep it under control but loosen things up enough that more people can go to work? Do uh, the Chinese are doing that. So do you think we should have everyone wear face masks when they're outside? Assuming we have them, if we once we get enough for everyone to do that. <coughs> it may be a good idea. Uh, I mean, I'm not thrilled by the idea, but it may be a good idea. Uh, and and as I, the other thing is, you know, we have a few things going for us. Uh, what? If we're talking about you know, people who are good at doing biomedical research, the United States probably has more trained and intelligent people in this than anywhere else in the world. And England's probably number two, which is <coughs> another reason it strikes me as particularly silly for to have a policy that's assumed, well, you know, that, you know, I'm oversimplifying, but by assuming nothing can be done. I mean, if anybody can do it, the English have an excellent chance. Yeah. Uh, they have lots of good people. I mean, it's not a coincidence that people like Sanger won two Nobel Prizes. I mean, they have good people, bright people. Uh, you know, at the very least, let them all do their most. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, and by the way, that's another factor, which is, you know, who else would be interested in coming up with either a good treatment or a good way of prevention besides the United States? And I said, unlike most problems, I'm pretty sure the answer here is everyone. Right. And, for example, let's suppose that somebody in some obscure corner of the world comes up with, you know, step one, uh, a simple way of cutting the r not a lot in a way that doesn't cost people much. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't care. I mean, I, I'd be happy to steal it from him. Or if he's if he's voluntarily giving it, that's great too. I mean, I don't insist on having it has to be an American solution. I ins I would insist that America do their do its level best. But you know, if you know, if somebody from anywhere has an answer, then we're all better off. Uh, and also, in many cases, you know, people who have will solve a part of the puzzle. You know, they won't have the whole answer, but you know, it might be that we'll have somebody. Hey, you know. There are bright guys in Iran, hard as that is to believe sometimes. Uh, and, you know, if they came up with something that was useful and could be used other places, I wouldn't sneeze on it, yeah. so, so to speak. Uh, the uh, uh, But the idea that nothing can be done except having a lot of people catch it, it's it's not really feasible because the numbers involved would, would have to – you'd have to – this would it would take years if you were trying to make sure that the number of really sick people was smaller than the number of slots we have to which we can give uh, you know a lot of respiratory help. It would take years. People don't fully understand in a place like Italy or China, the the fraction that was infected that overloaded the hospitals was uh, still small. Like what percent or so was it? Do you know? Two, maybe. I mean, I've seen some numbers of the general population. They're doing some tests in Italy, and we're talking about numbers like two and a half percent. But but the thing is, it's uh, I mean, also the Chinese say we didn't have enormous numbers of of people who got it and, and weren't symptomatic. I mean, I 
I think that most of them were probably children. But the thing is, like, the total number of deaths in China was about 4,000. And, and it looks like that might have been 5% of the people who had it. And that means, you know, it's 80,000 people. And, and, well, that's what they're saying for cases, 80,000. Suppose it's 160,000. That's a teeny tiny fraction of China. Yeah. Teeny tiny. China, you know, 10 to the ninth. Here we're having, you know, 10 to the fifth. It's one in 10,000 Chinese. It's a tiny fraction. The idea that, uh, uh, you know, herd immunity has been a big factor in what's going on in China. I said, no, they didn't let it go. If it had been, it would have killed a million people or more. Uh, you know, it would have been a much huger thing. I don't know why the people are, you know, these people really do seem to think the British advisors or, or they're saying, well, we couldn't get people to uh, cooperate with this onerous rules. I said, uh, they are onerous in some ways, but I have every confidence that the, the current people, the current population of England and the United States can be buffaloed into doing utterly ridiculous crap, let alone useful difficult crap. You can convince them, you might even be able to convince them of something's difficult but useful as opposed to, you know, utterly ridiculous. Well, another analogy is if you can convince kids to do enormous amounts of studying of material they don't like and, you know, have parents that force them to do it, then you probably could stay home for a few months. Think of all the things people do, not because they enjoy them, but because they want to look uh, somehow normal or competent or to, uh, you know, they want to create an impression in other people. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's a million things like that. Uh, and, but here, uh, you know, uh, in fact, I think one of the big lessons of, uh, you know, the year 2020 is you, is that Stalin was wrong. He thought you needed to shoot people to get them to do what you want. You merely have to threaten, tell them that, you know, maybe you won't get tenure, maybe you won't be invited to a party, maybe you won't get laid, and then people will just, Bark like seals and say the most ins say stuff that was fully as insane as anybody said in Russia in 1936. Uh, Stalin uh, used overkill. He could have used social pressure to make people say say and do insane things. That's the lesson of America. We can use that lesson to make you know we'll use social pressure. Oh, I mean probably probably we can find ways of hinting that people who don't fully cooperate are. You know, they're probably bad people. I, I mean, I've seen pictures of people at bars and, and college students on their spring break. And I, I know this isn't constitutional, but I would love it if we could tattoo disease spreader on their faces and permanently. It's just for the well, adults who are doing that. That's probably just... appropriate is you just use a stamp. That's what they do in a bar. It's like proving that you're whether you're 18 or not. So mm -hmm. we'll just stamp on their forehead, you know, asshole or something like, you know, some short. Uh, comment like this. But the thing is, we have many ways, you know, you know, can we control it? Yes. Can we fairly soon, sooner than people think, find a way that, you know, the, the onerous parts of the control can be relaxed? Sure. I mean, some part, I mean, the Chinese, for example, have already gone farther than they need to, and they know it. Uh, you know, the, the modeling looks, says that they, they drop R0 from 3 to 0.3. If they could move it up, if they could relax things, but only carefully watching and testing and saying R0 is now 0.8, it's still shrinking. Right. Although you uh, do need to do a lot of testing with that approach, right? In a lot of, United, a lot of, yes. A lot the United of States is not testing, so. We, we'll get there. Oh, by the way, the, the equivalent of Mr. Lupo 
uh, the CDC had both said, we want to make sure that the, the tests that don't have too high an error rate and that we control are the only ones, and they forbade everybody else to do it. Yeah. Uh, although many people have the skills and knowledge ready to make it. You know, they're basically PCR-type tests. Many people, many researchers and hospitals and have know how to do it. And the guys up in Washington, uh, I mean, I think they had some reasons because they were starting to see something already. But they said, well, for research, can we do it? For research, they said, well, okay, we have, there's a special. So what they did is they found a loophole and they went ahead and did the thing that needed to be done. Okay. Uh, so clearly they, we can never make appoint them to high office. Uh, but, uh, you know, and they weren't quite as quick and direct as, as Lupo with his pistol holding it to the guy's head, but they got it done, and I praised them for that. And uh, and they unfortunately found there was a lot of it. I think there was perhaps more in Washington than in some other places, although it could just be that we've tested more. But <clears throat> there are, you know, there are several places. You know, there was that one uh, life care establishment, some sort of uh, uh, something like a, you know, an assisted living place or something. Mm-hmm. And they had a lot of people with it, and a lot of very vulnerable people, and they've had quite a few deaths. Uh, the official number out of there is about uh, 13 or something. The actual number is closer to double that, because they had a number of people you know, who died, and they died in a way that's much more deaths than they normally expect in a month, but these people did not go to the hospital, did not get tested. So there's, there were like, what, 13 deaths that were tested and shown to have it, but there were another 11 that were you know, anomalously common, and in the same time period, you know, since uh, 219, that were not tested. So the real number there was probably a little over 20 uh, people were killed by it. Along with, and most of the of the staff got sick. Mm-hmm. Although I don't, I don't believe any of them have died, at least not yet. Uh, so uh, uh, anyhow, you know, uh, you know, the system works. The system doesn't look anything like what you think it does. The system is a few people out there going and breaking the rules and getting it done. Good. But that's the system. Uh, okay. All right. Well, let's um let's wrap it up. So I okay. we are it's very good news. We're optimistic. If things get shut down, we drastically socially <laughs> isolate, and that's certainly the trend the United States is on in the last few days. Then we're we're optimistic that we can avoid mass death from this. Uh, I think we may lose a few thousand. I hope not. But I think if we really stick to our guns, we, it may not have to be more than that. But worldwide, we're probably going over a million, do you think? A million I, I, I have not been thinking too much about the worldwide numbers. There are certain areas that I don't know what's going on because maybe there's local climatic factors that are helping. We haven't seen a lot yet. And the other thing is, if they if they don't have those, they're screwed. Uh, yeah. uh, so I have not been thinking too much, partly because it would be depressing. Yeah, the numbers could easily be bit much bigger than that. Uh, it, de- but as I said, if it depends what methods people find. Some methods would be easily used everywhere. Mm-hmm. Some would take sort of high tech medicine, and if it does, you're not going to see a whole lot of it in Africa. Yeah, I guess that would be tragic for Africa if we find something that works, but it's really expensive. So then we kind of stop looking, or mostly. I imagine like the Gates Foundation will keep looking, but the, you know, most of our pharmaceutical industry stops looking because we've solved the problem for rich people. Uh, well, you know, it started out that way with anti-AIDS drugs, but you know, the development of them is expensive, 
it's fairly unusual for the production, for the marginal costs to be very expensive. We certainly got to the point where they could be very widely used in Africa, and it didn't take a real long time. Although, you know, that thing spread much more slowly. So when I say real long time, that might have been a couple of, you know, a few years. Today, in this situation, a real long time might be a couple of months. Yeah. So it's hard to say. Okay. All right. Well, th thanks very much, Greg, and enjoy talking to you. Okay. Thank you. Bye.